If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Day number two of Thanksgiving leftovers. The meal that keeps giving in more ways than one. Here's Scott Thompson. Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, the gang's all here. As of uh, September 30th, uh, restrictions at the border, uh, mandatory vaccination proof of, and the RiveCan app uh, no longer being mandatory. Those changes went into effect. Uh, already hearing that some border towns such as Windsor and even uh, uh, attendance in and around Stratford is on its way up as a re- as a result. Is the same happening in Niagara Falls. Let's bring in, in Jim Diodati, Mayor of Niagara Falls. He's with us now. Jim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks for having me. I know it's only been a couple of weeks since we talked, but are you seeing an increase already? Are you seeing the same trend that other uh, border cities are? Yes, we are. Absolutely. We confirmed with our, we've got four uh, international crossings here, and uh, we checked bridge traffic. And comparing it to pre-pandemic, our numbers up until the first had been for U.S. visitation at about half, 50 to 55 percent of what it used to be. And now it's been a dramatic jump. It's already at 70 percent. And that's just in a week. So uh, we talked about you guys uh, doing some sort of publicity or whatever. Did you even need to do that? I mean, as soon as the word got out, word of mouth, did they start coming over? Well, you know, they are. And this is mostly people real close to the border. I mean, when you live along the border, we listen to the U.S. radio and TV stations and vice versa. We really stay close. It's really an integrated situation between our communities here. It's the concerns when you go a little farther out, like, for us, it'd be Michigan and Ohio and further down New York State. Down there where they're not paying as close attention to the border, that's where we're going to need some advertising just to market and let the world know that our borders are open again. And if it's the best kept secret, it's not going to serve anybody. But the good news is there's been an instant reaction along the border where people are grateful. And a lot of these people, I know for a fact, are the ones that had flip phones and never had access to the digital mm-hmm. technology who now feel very comfortable going across again. And, you know, it's amazing, and I'm just saying this anecdotally because my daughter and uh, wife just happened to take off today for a trip across. Uh, but it just seems that now that these restrictions are gone, people on both sides of the border just see, feel a, a bit more easy about it all. Yeah, you know, and especially for those of us, and, and it's hard to explain, but when I tell people, I said, we don't see the border like other people do. For us, yeah. there's Niagara Falls, New York, Niagara Falls, Ontario. We just see it as one city divided by a border where – you don't think twice to shoot across the river like anyone else would shoot across town and go visit some friends or family or go shopping or go for dinner. It's just another part of town. So for us, it was very disruptive to not be able to go to that other part of town. But yeah, for us, it's kind of nice to have life back to the way it used to be. Uh, and what about the value of the dollar, Jim? How does this affect tourism in Niagara Falls on this side of the border? Well, it always helps when the American dollar is worth more because obviously they typically come here and stay longer and spend more anyway. It's just one more reason because, you know, Americans love Canadians. They love coming to Canada. They see us as a foreign country that's not foreign to them. We're very similar in so many ways and their dollar goes farther. So uh, any chance they can, they love coming to Canada. So any excuse to get them here and to let them know the borders are open again, we're really happy to do it. Uh, and we touched on this earlier, and you've spoke about this in the past, and, and obviously states like Ohio, Michigan, whatever. Uh, what is in the works? What is going to happen? We're hearing noise of some funding for the Niagara region to do this. Well, yeah. So today there was some announcements around tourist initiatives. Nothing yet about cross-border stuff. It's been more about reinforcing domestic tourism, which is good. It's a good start. And we understand this will be a lot bigger nut to crack. It'll be a lot more money. And uh, we'll be, like I said, engaging our, our national, so our federal uh, tourism minister, as well as our provincial tourism minister. And we think it's got to be a cooperative campaign and not just Ontario. It's got to be coast to coast. We think it's a great opportunity and have some fun with it. And I think do the old fashioned grand opening with a huge ribbon cutting to say mm-hmm. Canada is once again open. We can have a symbolic red carpet that we roll out and 
do all the kind of things that we do when we have a new business opening and people are always excited. There's good energy. And I think it's a, a common thing that we can all work together, whether it's border mayors, uh, provincial ministers or federal ministers, something we can all do together. You were talking earlier, Jim, that uh, obviously domestic tourism has come back and, and, and Canadians are supporting you. It was the Americans you were waiting for uh, with the with the uh, the mandatory restrictions being dropped and such. That being said, when you do open the border this way, do you see more on a domestic front as well, just because people are talking about it? Yeah, you know, it's tourism has been fantastic domestically in Niagara Falls and this past weekend for Thanksgiving, the city was full. You know you're doing good when there's people here during the week as well, not just mm. on the weekends. And, of course, Mother Nature's been kind to us, so the weather's been terrific. And people grabbing those last bits of, of nice weather. And also, i got to say, Niagara Falls, this is one of the most gorgeous times with along the gorge, near the falls, up and down the parkway, mm. uh, the Niagara Parkway between Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. The leaves going red and orange and yellow. I tell people, you want one of the... Prettiest drives, as, as Winston Churchill once said, you come down here, it doesn't cost anything, drive up and down the parkway, take it all in. It's gorgeous, like a mosaic. It's beautiful right now. And it's going to get nicer for the next couple of weeks. Jim Diodati with his mayor of Niagara Falls, uh, two weeks in from the Arrive Can app, no longer being mandatory. They're already seeing the increases and, of course, painting a beautiful picture for us all to get down there. Jim, as always, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thank you, too, Scott. We've talked before about uh, NASA's plan to uh, shoot something at an asteroid with the idea of kind of knocking it off course. So not that it needed to be done, but if something was coming, you know, wailing towards the Earth, uh, could we... Could we do something to kind of change the direction or tra- uh, trajectory of it and 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 save everyone's life as they do in Hollywood movies? Uh, so uh, uh, so NASA did all of this and successfully smashed this. And normally they don't like to do this, but su- uh, successfully smashed this spacecraft into the asteroid. So you know, uh, impact made. There's success number one. But did it actually move anything? That takes a little time to study, and apparently. Currently, um, the results are in. Uh, Dr. Jesse Rogerson is with us, Assistant Professor, Science and Technology Studies in Natural Science with York University and is with us now. Jesse, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I'm doing well. I hope you're well, too. So far, so good. So um, first of all, uh, obviously, this was a success and you you have seen movement. How do you measure this? How do you determine whether it's a success or not? Yeah, good question. So the the way you do this is so to to paint the picture here you have to remember it's a double asteroid that they were going to impact so you have one big large asteroid about 800 meters in size 800 meters wide and then you have a smaller asteroid about 150 meters wide that's orbiting the larger one and the the spacecraft called dart went and smacked into the smaller one that was orbiting the larger one now before it did the impact We've been watching this double asteroid system for quite a while, watching the one orbit the other around and around and around. And we had a very, very precise measurement of the orbit of how long it took for the little one to go around the big one at about 11 hours and 55 minutes. So that's the, the period, the time it takes for the small asteroid to go around the big one. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the starting orbit. And then Dart went off and went flowing, flying at it and smacked right into the middle of it at like 20,000 kilometers an hour. And then what they did over the next week or two is they then continued to measure how long it takes for that small object to go around the big object. And the what they were hoping for was that they would change the time, the period, by at least 75 seconds. That was mm-hmm. like the 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 number of success. If they got if they changed it, made it longer or shorter by 75 seconds, then they'd say, yes, we moved it. We made it into a different orbit. Um, what they did measure over the last week or so is that the orbit is now 11 hours and 23 minutes, which is wow. 32 minutes shorter, which is well above the expectations, meaning they confirmed they absolutely hit it and they absolutely changed its orbit. Uh, what are the pros and cons to doing this? Obviously, the you know, if you're watching Hollywood movies, something coming, you know, uh, <laughs> driving towards the Earth. How do we save it? But does this affect other things? You know, it's like if you squeeze one end of a tube of toothpaste, something happens at the other end. Just what happens when you move things in orbit like this? Or, or yeah, that's know? a good question. Yeah, and to and to um, just to be clear on this in this specific case, 
because they were hitting a asteroid that was orbiting another asteroid, there's no chance of any any danger here. It, it'd be right. like it'd be like sending a spacecraft to smack into one of Mars's moons. Um, there's no chance of anything. Um, right. Any any change of orbit to overcross with with Earth anyway. But let's say you now that we've demonstrated the technology and we find an asteroid that is heading towards Earth and we send a spacecraft out and we we hit it and we move it a little bit. And let's say it works perfectly and we've moved it so that the asteroid is no longer going to hit Earth. What you then do is you set up a scenario where we have to keep track of this asteroid for many years, hundreds of years into the future, because even though it missed us this time, when you nudge it, you then need to be sure that the next time it comes mm -hmm. around or the time after that or the 10 or 15th time after that, that it's not going to hit us then. So it becomes a management scenario. So the upside is we it seems like we are able to do this the downside is how do we do it so precisely how do we make sure that we we nudge it into the perfect spot that we don't have to worry about it anymore and i think that that's going to be a much tougher thing to do almost sounds like curling in space yeah that's uh, exactly that's a good boy yeah. it's it's bizarre uh so what exactly is what exactly hit this what is it just a rocket with dead weight on it what what actually hit the the asteroid yeah it was um it was about the size of a, a refrigerator uh, roughly speaking and it, it was mostly just weight um but it had on board a one in one scientific instrument a camera and it had on a, as well as a radio transmitter to and as it was flying in it it was point its camera was pointed right at the the object and we got great images all the way up yeah and and then it smacked into it and then it was it was really like we have a term for this kind of spacecraft. It's it's literally called an impactor. We have other spacecrafts like orbiters or landers or rovers. Mm. This is called an impactor designed specifically to impact. Uh, so that's the that's the thing that hit. And when if you study those images, uh, if you look at them, you'll notice that the the object that it hit, the little tiny asteroid, 150 meters in size, kind of looks like a big pile of rubble. All the little they look like just a bunch of rocks sort of floating together in space. Mm. And when it did hit it. This is speaking to your, your earlier question. Another potential downside is that it left behind a big trail of debris. And so right. you it, it's it's almost turned itself into a, almost like a comet like object. And now um, you have a bunch of debris out there. Now, that stuff's not going to be dangerous to us. It probably should dissipate. But you, we should be careful when impacting these things that we are aware of the potential downsides, like where where shards could go afterwards. So where do you go with this information now? Is this it or do they continue to refine this? What happens with this program? Uh, that's a great question. I think we the the next there's two things there. The next thing is they more testing is needed because, yes, a successful test has been done, but that doesn't mean we're we're perfect at it. Right. This is just a first a first try. And if you want to be really good at something, you got to do it a bunch of times. So we need to find another double asteroid. We need to find another type of test to run or something like this. But the I think the mo most important part about planetary defense from asteroids or comets is that something like this, a redirection of an asteroid is only possible if we know th about the asteroid many years in advance. Hmm. So we need to know that the asteroid is going to hit us like five years in advance or 10 years in advance, because that a little nudge at that early allows it to miss earth but if you if you find it like a few days before it's going to hit earth then there's no nudging that can happen that that'll make it miss you need to catch it early give it the little nudge early and that'll be enough to make it miss us so the number one thing is we need to potentially i don't know look at or reevaluate or step up our earth our sky obser observations of looking for asteroids making sure we know where they are and make sure making sure we track them that's like the number one thing we should be doing with planetary defense and why kids you should keep up with the math it's all math <laughs> isn't it <laughs> it's it's all math and physics and really interesting orbital dynamics it's really cool science Dr. Jesse Rogerson with us, Assistant Professor, Science and Technology Studies in Natural Science with York University, talking about NASA successfully redirecting an asteroid with its DART test. Uh, Jesse, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. No worries, Scott. Thanks for having me.
We learned yesterday Angela Lansbury passed away just shy of her 97th birthday. Uh, and, you know, like I, I think back to, I, I think of my mother when I think of Angela Lansbury because she was a huge Murder, She Wrote fan. But when you think about it, whether it's Disney cartoons or what have you, uh, her career span generations. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Bill Brio is with us, TV critic and author. He is with us now. Bill, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, you look at the career of Angela Lansbury, and unfortunately, it's not until people like this, of this, of this stature pass away that you realize how long they've been doing it and what they've seen over the course of their career. And Angela Lansbury is certainly one of those people. Yeah, she sure is. And, you know, she harkens back to the Hollywood's golden era, really. You know, yeah. she was uh, in movies in the 40s at MGM and... um you know, and then the 60s, Manchurian Candidate. But uh, certainly uh, there are very few people left with links back to films that were in the 1940s. Started in her teens. I mean, I think if she was like 17 or something when she did her first role. Yeah, and she always looked older than she was, right? Yeah. So she was playing moms when she was just, you know, I think of the Manchurian Candidate, she's playing a mother, but the actor playing her son is four years younger, you know, like she just something about her face that looked older all the time. Uh, and uh, so she didn't really play the ingenue parts that long. Isn't it bizarre that in a world where we think that being Hollywood, where you have to have that youthful look, that youthful whatever in order, especially for women to succeed. Yet here was an actress who a lot of the time played characters that were more mature than she was, older than she was, and then aged gracefully and made that uh, that was one of the strongest periods in her career. Yeah. And her career lasted like six decades or whatever. You know, it's incredible. Um I met her uh, on my very first TCA press tour, the television critics who go down to the States. And um, first one I was ever on was way back in 1984. And she was one of the stars of the new CBS shows that year, Murder, She Wrote. And I remember back then it was, we were in smaller round tables. We were as 10 of us in a room. She walked in without any publicists or anything. She just sat down and, um, you know, I just thought, I hadn't been in this situation before. I thought the stars were brought in on a throne, you know, with a fan <laughs> and she, just, she just walks down like your mom, like you say, Scott, and uh, couldn't have been nicer and uh, more down to earth. And you interviewed her several times, did you not, at those uh, press junkets? I did. I had other occasions uh, going uh, many years later um, in um, about 20 years ago. CBS was still doing sort of murder. She wrote uh, TV movies um, mm. and uh, she did four of them. She was there at one of these occasions and I saw her. I knew a photographer, uh, Jean Trindle, who was her unit photographer on murder. She wrote that show was on 12 years and she was nominated every single year. Never won an Emmy, but nominated all the time. Uh, but she and Jean had a real close relationship. Uh, he got her to pose for all kinds of fun stuff. And, um, yeah, we had a chat about Jean at that occasion, but just a lovely lady every time you encounter her. Would you consider her a character actress? Yeah, sure. I think she would, you know, I mean, but sometimes she was a headlining character actress or yeah. she was playing Mame or something on Broadway. But uh, certainly anyone who uh, would play Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast <laughs> as a voice actor would have to agree they're a character actress yeah uh how do you explain her going from one genre to another to another to another that certainly does capture that era of star i think she's just a real total pro if you go online and look around youtube today you'll find her shooting those scenes uh where they're shooting uh beauty and the beast and she's in an animation booth a recording booth along with uh, others uh, and, um, man, watch her act as that cartoon character. She just throws herself. It's like a Broadway performance. And I think, you know, she worked because people knew what they were getting and that she would really deliver. And she always did. Uh, cut from the same cloth as say a Betty white. Cause they're from the same era. Although one more dramatic, one more comedic. I think that's a good comparison, Scott. You know, I mean, Betty white. 1949, I think, was her first TV show, and uh, she worked hard. She did um, a series that was on in the daytime, and I think it was on like 
four hours a day or something. She had to do the commercials as well. And these were just real troopers who did these things for years and uh, they were good at it and they loved it. And it came across within their performances. It seems to, uh, in order to make it over or have longevity in this business, it's not to be the brightest star, but just under the radar consistent. Yeah, you know, it's it's when you look at um, Jerry Lewis or Frank Sinatra, uh, how, what they were, you know, enormous stars, but they um, kind of flamed out on television, you know, that you wouldn't see them every week. When uh, they tried to do weekly shows, it was too much of those guys. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, but then, of course, you're looking at Angela Lansbury was on for 12 years. Um, when that show started, they, um, you know, they signed people up for five-year contracts generally. She thought the show was going to flop. It was on against Amazing Stories. The Steven Spielberg had a series. And CBS thought this, you know, show with a middle-aged actress, not going to work. And uh, I think she was a bit shocked that she had to wait 12 years to get back to Broadway. Bill Brio, TV critic and author, talking about the life and times of Angela Lansbury, who passed away yesterday at the age of 96. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we have seen things escalate uh, in Ukraine and, uh, of course, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, Russia annexing uh, another four regions, uh, sabotage to uh, the Nord Stream pipeline, and now the bridge uh, that joins Crimea also sabotaged, uh, or sabotaged there, although it seems to be, well, is it a little bit more clear how this happened, as Russia has arrested a for the Crimea, uh, Crimea bridge blast uh, to find more uh, find out more about all of this Arl Brown is with us professor of international relations and senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto and is with us now Arl thanks for the time as always hope you're doing well I'm fine thank you so uh, Arl eight people arrested Russia has arrested eight what do we know about this Crimea bridge blast very little in fact uh that Russia has arrested people means uh, uh, not much because uh, this is a dictatorship. Uh, they arrest people all the time. There are trumped-up charges. There's no independent court, and this could be just for uh, publicity. At the same time, maybe they did find some uh, people who were involved, but we, we won't know, and I would not uh, put a lot of stock in the Russian statements. Uh, and the same for the pipeline? Sweden is doing an investigation, and they are not releasing the findings to the Russians. But I think sooner or later, we will get uh, a pretty good sense of what that investigation is. And the strong suspicion in NATO is that this was done by Russia to send a message that the West Europeans are not going to be getting energy and that they will be freezing in the winter. And consequently, they should cave in to Russian demands. Uh, obviously, um, people blaming each other for what has happened to the pipeline, not the case here, uh, or is it? Um, I mean, is it, it, do we have any, uh, any theories on what happened to this bridge, other than what Russia is saying with these eight arrested? We see from satellite imagery that the bridge has been damaged significantly, not destroyed. It's very hard to destroy large bridges, but there has been... Uh, significant damage to the extent that they could only restore some partial train service. Russia is very heavily dependent on train service. It tells you how Russia, in many ways, is not a modern state. Troops are uh, uh, moved across railways, and so this is a heavy blow because even if they have some train service, it complicates the logistics of supplying uh, the troops in Crimea and to Crimea to the Kherson region especially, that region is now uh, being very heavily contested by Ukraine. They want uh, to take that region back. They are making progress. And this is why we see, in the case of Russia, not a military strategy. They're losing militarily by all accounts. What we are seeing is a terror strategy. That is, Vladimir Putin has gone back 
to the default setting of a KGB officer. And that is that you try to terrorize the victim, to instill such fear in the victim that she will have a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Now, Ukraine has defied Russia. Uh, they have suffered grievous losses, but they are not afraid. And today, the Western countries met, and at least so far, they are showing also that they are not going to allow Russia to intimidate them. In that case, the options that uh, Vladimir Putin has, um, uh, those options will continue to narrow because militarily, the Russian uh, armed forces proved to be, as I noted in previous programs, they proved to be as corrupt and inefficient as Russian society itself under Vladimir Putin. So it's safe to say Russia is becoming increasingly agitated by the fact that Ukraine just will not back down, obviously uh, fortified by its allies and such. That doesn't seem to be changing. Every time Russia ramps something up, it seems the allies uh, pledge more support for Ukraine. So how concerned are you, Arl, that he is being backed into a corner, which we've talked about in the past, and what he will do once he is? Well, if I may rephrase this, uh, he's not being backed into a corner. He's backing himself into a corner. Hmm. He has options, and he can make concessions, and he has made concessions. He has changed things. You will recall that at the beginning, his ambition was almost unlimited. He demanded that Ukraine itself just cave in. His claim was that there was no legitimate country called Ukraine, it was an artificial construct, that there were no Ukrainian people, that uh, NATO basically had to pull back from the expansion in uh, 1997 or post-1997, or at least substantively pull back, that any move by Sweden or uh, Finland to join NATO would be met with the harshest possible response. And he has backed off many of these things. Now he's talking about four regions of Ukraine. That is not a small claim, but that's not all, all of Ukraine. And the blood-curling threats that he made against Sweden and Finland, those have uh, basically gone away now. Hmm. So he certainly is capable of finding his own off-ramp. And I think... Uh, it's not particularly wise for us to assume that he has no agency and that somehow we need to infantilize him and find an off-ramp for him. He can do that himself. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto. As always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Believe me, we have talked about this way too much. And the last time we talked to Catherine McDonald was after the loss of uh, two police officers in Ontario in two days. Now South Simcoe police uh, have uh, revealed, well, a, a news conference earlier today, uh, the shooting last night in Innisfil, Ontario, uh, has uh, claimed the lives of two police officers in the area of 25th Side Road and 9th Line uh, after police responded to a report of a disturbance at a home. Catherine McDonald is in Innisfil today. She joins us now, uh, Global News journalist. Catherine, thank you for the time. Man, oh man, the last time we chatted to you, it was after the loss of two police officers. You talked about how emotionally draining and difficult this is for everybody that's involved in these investigations, victims, and those helping them and such. I, I can't imagine what the mood is like in Innisfil today. What is it yeah. like? I mean, honestly, I woke up this morning uh, to getting a news release from a Toronto police officer uh, because there's, there was so much shock a month ago that, you know, when this Andrew Hong, Constable Andrew Hong was shot to death in that ambush in that Tim Hortons. And, and at that time, a lot of police officers were saying to me, you know, it's just a terrible time to be a cop. And, and some of them told me they won't even walk into a Tim Hortons in uniform because there's uh, not that pride that there used to be. There's a sense of, sense of fear. And, and this, again strikes fear in the policing community. Um, you know, the fourth officer in a month in Ontario to be killed, three of them in the line of duty. And again, this appears to be a case of two officers responding to a call. I can tell you the street here in Innisfil is a leafy tree-lined street, a few blocks from Lake Simcoe. Uh, no one, a lot of Halloween decorations and families, no one would ever believe that this could happen on their streets. And it, it's happened again. 
What do we know? Uh, we know this happened inside a home. There was a, a disturbance of some sort. What sort of information do we have about what happened in that house? So what we know mostly is that from, you know, the police say that these two men walked into the home. These two officers, they were, uh, there was, they were shot inside that home. Uh, the SIU says the suspect uh, was, uh, there was an exchange of gunfire with the officers. The suspect was pronounced dead on scene. After that interaction, someone asked if, if it was a self-inflicted gunshot wound, uh, the SIU would not comment. There's that possibility. Um, and, yeah, two officers, one were taken to a local hospital. One died on the scene. Uh, his name, uh, Constable Northrop, 33 years old. Of course, you know, just last year we lost Constable Jeff Northrop in Toronto. The name, the, the fact that he has the same last name as a Toronto officer killed in the line of duty, shocking. And then the other officer, uh, Constable um Morgan, uh, his first constable, this constable, um, sorry, Constable De- Devin Northrop and Constable Morgan Russell. I wanted to get those names accurate. Constable Devin Northrop, uh, he is a 33-year-old. Constable Morgan Russell was a 54-year-old. I, and Constable Russell, there was a Ryan Russell killed in the line of duty. I covered that case mm. in Toronto and about 10 years ago. So two officers with last names that uh, you know, mirror names of other officers from Toronto who have been killed in the line of duty. It's, it's, it's hard to believe, and I'm friends with Constable Northrop's widow from meeting her, covering her husband's, you know, tragic mm. death. And, I, you know, I thought this morning, I, I know it's, they're not related, but you can't help but um, think, well, what are the chances? And these two men, um, Constable Morgan Russell, who went by Mo, we've learned that he was just months away from retirement. He could have retired after 30 years. He had 33 years here on the job. And this is a small police service. Apparently, there are only 120 officers. People know their name. Uh, this is, you know, they, they, they um, look after Innisfil and Bradford areas. Uh, the whole population of Innisfil is roughly 40,000. So can you imagine uh, how many people knew these guys to see them? Uh, and, and really, the last time there's been a police shooting here, sorry, a police officer killed in the line of duty, I'm told, was 20 years ago. Probably the first time that it happened. Uh, it, at the scene at the town hall today when the chief spoke was unbelievable. It was packed with police officers and uh, officials, many of them hugging and crying. Uh, retired officers showed up because everyone knows these men. So it's it's a, a real sense of loss for this community and in shock. Do we know if this situation was a, a domestic situation? Was it a case of mental health? Any sort of thoughts there, uh, uh, again, inside the home? Well, you know, the SIU is now in charge, which means that this information will trickle out. But we, we've learned that the suspect, uh, the man who was shot in the police interaction and pronounced dead on scene, he's 23, and we've learned that he lived there with his grandparents. Uh, we haven't gone with a name yet, though. We're starting to learn a little bit about him. Um, but the family doesn't want the name released yet, so the SIU is holding it back. That doesn't mean it's not going to come out. Um, you know, People don't know a lot about him on this street, um, but it, it is, you know, the question, we've heard that he had an assault-style rifle. The SIU will not confirm what kind of weapon was seized, though there was a weapon seized from the suspect. And, you know, did these men, did these officers have a chance when they walked into this home? Uh, he lived with his grandparents. We heard that they, the family members called, called in the disturbance call. Did they witness this? Uh, and obviously, if he lived with his grandparents, it, it makes sense they don't want his name released, but it's going mm-hmm. to come out. And there will be questions about how he was able to get a rifle type. We've heard assault weapon, which, again, is unconfirmed and, and the SIU will not confirm. But, you know, a scary situation for every police officer in this province. I was speaking to Jeff McGuire, who's uh, with the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police. He says, I can't. There was a time in the 80s where there was a spate of shootings or killings involving police officers, but this is really unheard of. And really in the, in the course of four weeks to have four officers killed, three of them in the line of duty here in Ontario, it sends a chill through this policing community and certainly through this town. And you talked about uh, this happened at the grandparents' home, uh, that, that this was uh, apparently the grandson or lived there or what have you. Um, any threats or any injury to the grandparents at all? We have not heard of any, any threats or injuries to them or what they witnessed. It, you would think that they might have seen or heard what happened. Certainly neighbors uh, tell me they heard about a dozen shots fired, of, of course. Uh, it's not clear who, you know, whether they, any of those came from police officers' uh, weapons, or were they, were they all from the suspect weapon? Uh, again, 
did he did he kill himself or was there there was an interaction with police, but we don't know the circumstances of his death. Um, but yeah, I mean, so many questions here. Um, what did the grandson do? We're trying to dig into that, of course, until his name is released. It's hard for us, or until we decide we're going to go with this, it's hard for us to tell you a lot about him. But these questions are going to come out in the, in the next few days. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, this uh, now in the hands of the SIU. When do you think there will be another news release or news conference on this? Look, anyone's guess. They say this investigation, they, they hope to have it done within 120 days. That being said, the name is going to come out, I would think, in the next uh, day or so. Um, and, of course, then we're going to be looking into this man's past. How, how did he uh, obtain a gun? And uh, had the police been called here before? And, and why were the police not sort of forewarned when they walked into that home that there might have been a threat as, you know, someone with, mm. who was armed? Because clearly the, the SAU confirms that only two officers responded to this home. And if they thought that there was a threat, they probably would have waited for backup before entering that home. And, and obviously the ending was so tragic and, you know, a number of families affected now in this whole community. I mean, devastated to, because so many of them knew these these officers. Catherine McDonald reporting to, uh, for us from Innisfil, Ontario. And make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more on Catherine and this story as it progresses. Catherine, thanks so much for the time. Uh, be well. Good luck moving forward with all of this. Okay. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly remember the Emergency Act being called and uh, the big fight in Ottawa with a convoy, even though like 90% of us were already vaccinated. Instead of celebrating the fact that 90% of us are vaccinated, we vilify the last 10%. I'm not sure where we go there. Uh, anyway, we all remember the horn blasting and what ended up uh, with the Emergency Act being called. Uh, now hearings as part of that Public Order Emergencies Commission emergency commission's national inquiry until the use uh, uh, into the use of the emergency act begins tomorrow ahead of the public inquiry uh, public testimony rather the commissioner has released a list of 65 anticipated witnesses and includes uh, organizers of the convoy government officials local residents law enforcement other key players what is the objective here what are we trying to cover are we trying to find out what happened or just cover something up let's bring in duff conniger co-founder of democracy watch he's with us now duff thank you for your time hope you're doing well yes thank you hope you are as well what is the objective here duff what are we trying to figure out is this about justifying it or or figuring out whether it was needed or not uh well really the big question which the government uh, has still not answered fully uh is did the government have a reason to uh declare an emergency based on the actual requirements of the act. And uh, the government still has not answered that question. So hopefully uh, the uh, justice heading up this inquiry will uh, get enough information from the government to, uh, to make a, a ruling as to whether it was justified or not and actually met the criteria of the act. Are you confident that by the end of this, that question will be answered? No, I think the government will continue to claim that there's certain information it cannot disclose and uh, that that is the information that proves that it was needed. The fact that and this is all... walk away with that, with, you know, saying for those who trust the cabinet that uh, they've provided enough information and uh, those who don't trust the federal Trudeau liberal cabinet will... Uh, continue to not uh, believe that they actually had cause to that actually met the requirements of the Emergencies Act. If there was such a threat, if it was such a out-of-control mob, um, and, and again, I'm not condoning any of this by any means, um, but I'm not, I, I'm not clear that it had to go this far. I'm, I'm not sure that this could not all have been, uh, neutralized long before it got to the three week, uh, uh, mark, uh, three week mark. Um, but the fact that this is pretty much petered out, the convoys, you know, it's, they're not doing anything else. I mean, is this still a threat? Does it mean it ever was a threat? Um, well, I think the government is relying in part on saying, well, it was only in place invoked for uh, just over a week. And so 
uh, we backed off as, as uh, soon as the uh, initial blockades were removed at the borders and in front of parliament. Uh, and so, you know, no one should worry too much. We didn't extend it for too long a period, and we uh, needed it for those for that period of just over a week. And no one should be too worried about it. Um, but uh, there are legal criteria that have to be satisfied to to uh, invoke the act. And so, as I say, hopefully the uh, justice will make a clear ruling on whether those criteria were actually met. Who are, are you most? There are court cases as well also that have been filed um, challenging that uh, the criteria were not met. And so uh, that will be another source of, of possible rulings on whether the government violated the law in invoking the Merchancies Act. Who are you more uh, more anticipating uh, test, uh, testifying here? Who are you very interested in listening to if they appear? Um, not many people at all, really. Uh, mostly interested in what documents the government is actually going to disclose. Uh, it's not a he said, she said situation. The government uh, has to meet a standard of proof for invoking the act. And that proof will be in documents, um, not between someone's ears. The, uh, you know, the, the views of the, the uh, people who blockaded the road in front of Parliament Hill are very well known and have been, uh, they've had lots of airtime. Um, and so we know what they, they thought. And, uh, and most of it was, uh, uh, by by uh, the self-proclaimed leaders was pretty cl- crazy. I mean, they actually thought that they could overthrow the government and declare it invalid mm-hmm. without an election. Um, and, and then others, of course, were actually just protesting the vaccine mandates. And their viewpoint has been very well uh, documented as well. They've had a lot of airtime also. Uh, and then the government has said what it said. So I don't think anyone's going to say anything different. The The government has to show why the Ottawa police could not, in cooperation with other police forces, remove uh, the blockade. And I think the evidence is pretty clear that the Ottawa police could have done it if they wanted to do it and, and uh, had taken the action. To do it, can, and they, can they? They just didn't do that. Will the federal government? Do you think blame the Ottawa police for this? Is this um, just pushing it off to somebody else? Uh, well, blame them for calling the Emergencies Act. Uh, the government can't order the Ottawa police to do anything, hmm. so that may be their end up uh, being their final uh, defense. Is uh, it's not? It's a municipal police force. Um, the city of Ottawa itself can't even order them to do things because we have a very uh, very justified and needed separation between politicians and police forces in terms of actions that are taken. The Ottawa police chief resigned, and he should have. Um, I think it was fairly clear that if the police force wants to enforce a law, uh, it could do so. The one thing is they would say that uh, tow truck um Operators were refusing to operate their tow trucks uh, to remove those trucks and that they needed the emergency uh, right. uh, forces to order them to do that. Duff uh, Conacher with us. I got to so cut you off the, there, Duff. That's the one thing, yeah. And we got to cut you off there, Duff. We're out of time. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Tomorrow, the inquiry into the Emergency Act begins. Thanks for the time, Duff. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Obviously talking about uh, the tragic news today of two police officers uh, last night uh, losing their lives in the line of duty in Innisfil, Ontario, going into a home, some sort of domestic scenario, uh, some sort of disturbance, and... Uh, 
obviously uh, uh, shots fired and uh, the officers lose their lives. Uh, fourth time this has happened in uh, less than a month, three of those in the line of duty. One, you remember, driving to work uh, and being killed by uh, allegedly a drunken driver. So uh, certainly a very sad day in the policing community and all of Ontario and the country for that matter. And we certainly see when this happens the huge sign of support from the the community, the policing community and such, uh, seeing this again today as uh, these officers were rushed to hospital. Let's bring in Perry Mason, uh, retired police officer, 34 years with the Hamilton Police Service. We've talked to him on the show when he was a former school resource officer, and he is with us now. Perry, thanks for the time. Great to speak with you again. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, obviously not in the best of circumstances. Uh, can you explain what it is like, what the feeling uh, is like, what comes over the community when you hear of an officer who has fallen in the line of duty? What is going through their minds on a day like today? Um, uh, I reached out to uh, a friend of mine who uh, came to work this morning, and uh, you know, he found out basically around the water cooler and uh, their their first response is shock. Uh, not again. What's happening? Why is this happening? Uh, you know they're they're discussing those issues, uh, and uh, you know it can trigger a lot of different emotions. Uh, how long have you been retired now, Perry? Nine years. Is it different now than when you retired, being a police officer? Uh, it's much different now. Um, Policing it has changed considerably over the years. Uh, I started way back in 1982, and uh, the face of policing was night and day, uh, the difference between then and now. Um, give us some examples of that. Well, uh, there's far more um, uh, personal surveillance, you know, with social media, mm. uh, the advances cell phones and, you know, you feel like you're being constantly surveilled, uh, which you are. Uh, and, and by far, there's more guns on the street. And with more guns on the street uh, comes obviously more violence. Uh, it's a significant difference from then and now. Uh, Innisville, uh, obviously a, a small town uh, south of Barrie. Uh, I believe there's 120 members that are on the service there. Um, different when this is a major city as opposed to a small community where, you know, for all intents and purposes, people live forever and happily ever after. Uh, many saying this isn't supposed to happen in towns like this. Any difference whether it's a big city or a town like this? Well, I think in a in a smaller town or city, the, the uh, community uh, response would be more significant. It's tighter knit. You know, you're probably know someone know you know someone who knows an officer on the service or you know someone who's on the service or somebody's brother's on the service so i think their collective grief would be more significant not to downplay the grief of any larger community uh but they i think they have their uh you know their specific problems in the smaller towns and districts. Hmm. What, um, when you first saw, and I mean, there's obviously limited information at this point, the SIU is involved and such. Uh, we know it was a gra the grandparents' home, uh, 23-year-old, um, and, and a weapon seized, although that's pretty much the information that we know. Your instinct, what does, and this is all speculation, what does this tell you? What are the first thoughts that come to mind when you hear of this case? Well, it reminds me uh, of something that I've uh, always thought. Um, police officers are very vulnerable. Uh, by that, I mean you know, every single person that they might come across in their day or course of duties uh, is a potential threat to them. Hmm. And by that, I mean uh, everyone you come across, uh, you don't know what they're thinking. And... Um, you can imagine going to work every day, meeting people all day with that possibility in the back of your mind. It kind of wears on you and it brings home the, the real uh, vulnerability that officers feel every day. And I think that's something most people don't understand. 
And and obviously, with limited information that we have here, uh, from what we know, they were shot inside the home, so walked in totally vulnerable, obviously not expecting this. And again, we don't know, we're speculating. But how does an officer deal with that? I mean, you could be meeting somebody who seems like your best friend, and then they snap because you're called to the worst of situations. How do you deal with that? Uh, well, you try to detach as much as you can. You try to prepare with your training as much as you can, um, your mindset as much as you can. But uh, in reality, um, you know, you don't deal with it. You just meet the challenges that comes upon you. There's no magic words, no magic training. Um, you know, can be as prepared as possible. Uh, but if someone is of a mind to hurt you, uh, and they're in that mindset, and they are able to surprise you, they can accomplish their goals, unfortunately, usually. Harry Mason with us, 34 years with the Hamilton Police Service, retired former school resource officer talking about the shooting in uh, Innisfil and uh, what must be going through the rank and file on days like uh, today. Uh, Perry, please, uh, our condolences to the policing community, and uh, thanks for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me, Scott. Christia Freeland, our Deputy Prime Minister, wants to get serious about dealing with Putin and the energy uh, weaponry that he has, or weaponization that he has caused. Uh, matter of fact, the headline uh, on the CTV News website, let's get serious about a Putin-era strategy for energy. Uh, and you can almost hear those in the oil industry collectively laughing out loud um, because they have been saying this for an awfully long time. Uh, clearly, uh, the liberals, federal liberals, are uh, climate change is one of their pillars, if not the major pillar of their um, of their government. However, they have uh, neglected to admit the situation, and that is we're just not there yet with renewables and. You've got a country like Germany who for the last 10, 20, 30 years on the cutting edge of the renewables industry, whether it's solar panels, whether it's wind turbines, now finds themselves a slave to Russia because after wokely canceling their nuclear program, their nuclear energy program, uh, now they find themselves as a slave to, uh, to Russia. And now we are talking about well, the headline says, uh, time to get serious about dealing with Putin uh, during this uh, era. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, President Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thank you, and hope you had a great weekend as well, Scott. So far, so good. Um, speaking of gas, but I move on. Um, first of all, let's talk about British Columbia and Vancouver. Why is their price dropping 35 cents in the next 24 hours? Well, they were paying two forty one, two forty two for a liter of gasoline going into the weekend. Uh, it dropped uh, what thirteen cents. I spoke to your sister station out there; they got the heads up. Uh, it dropped uh, thirteen. Hang on, I got yeah, thirteen cents on Saturday, and then it proceeded to drop yet again thirty five cents a liter uh, for tomorrow, which will push prices from where it was two forty two all the way down to one ninety two point nine, and they're probably going to see another three cent drop. I'll be uh, talking to their uh, uh, colleague uh, there, uh, Jess Johal, probably in the next half hour or so about that. But yes, it has to do with uh, the fact that refineries there uh, were running uh, very short of fuel. Many of them had gone through unplanned maintenance. Uh, some of them had uh, broken down. Uh, and the drop came only when a massive ship came in from Italy delivering the kind of fuel that they need in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, those refineries miraculously came back up and running. And uh, that uh, that's what caused what is the single the biggest drop in gasoline prices of any Canadian history, uh, any city I know in history. And I've been following this for goodness knows almost 30 years now. Vancouver must be very proud. There's a couple of records that they've uh, broken, including, including having the most expensive gas for any city in all of North America prior to uh, this drop. I heard some uh, person say that one of the reasons for this cost is that BC has some of the cleanest gasoline in Canada. What the hell does that mean? Oh, that's 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 hogwash. Uh, what they basically have is a carbon credit that they pay and cost them sixteen cent, fifteen cents a liter. Doesn't change anything. It's just uh, they buy carbon credits uh, so that they can uh, they can sell their fuel and they pass that on to consumers. It doesn't change anything. The only thing that changes is it's a single iota of difference. 
So that obviously is from some left-wing greenies that uh, like to uh, massage messages, but uh, realize that what they've done is uh, publicly fleeced uh, the uh, the folks that are out there who blindly vote for them. So the reality is, I'd love to see who that was. They'd never enter into debate with me on this one because, of course, I'd clean their clocks with facts. Uh, despite what um, uh, the federal government would like us all to believe, clearly the world is in demand for uh, liquid natural gas, if anything, to get people off of coal and, of course, help uh, our friends in Europe who are being uh, strangled by Russia. Is Christia Freeling, cha- uh, Christia Freeling changing her tune? Uh, Christia Freeland changing her tune on this. The headline in CTV, let's get serious what, uh, about a Putin era strategy for energy. I I thought, my goodness, Dan must be laughing. Uh, I can hear him all the way from from wherever he is. <laughs> what what is, is are they changing position here? Don't know. I think they're trying to ride both horses, but they rea- the reality is that they've empowered Mr. Putin. Let me make this really clear to your listeners: Canada empowered Putin to be able to sell to Europe to the exclusion of other countries because uh, we have a we've had a practice in this country perfected under the liberals uh, of killing pipelines of preventing our uh, energy, gas, and oil from getting to international markets. Uh, and the Liberals have a long list of, including their friends in the NDP, the key, uh, the uh, the uh, Energy East Pipeline, the Northern Gate pipe, Pipeline, uh, 13, 14, 15 LNG pipelines, uh, which companies have basically said, no, we're not doing business in this country because you guys keep changing your mind. It's costing us billions of dollars. Our shareholders want accountability. Look, we have the third largest provable reserves in the world on the ESG scores, that trendy, cute little thing that everyone thought was so bright. We're still the number one. <laughs> we produce a lot better than uh, every other nation on the face of this planet. At the end of the day, the liberals have got to finally we got, recognize, apologize to the world and to Canadians that they've not only caused uh, significant inflation by not getting our oil to market, but also now have empowered Vladimir Putin. So, if she's saying that uh, you know she wants to get real, if she's getting with the program and finally smell, waking up and smelling the coffee, I would suggest the apology would be the first thing. The second thing is that they should resign in disgrace. And I mean that because I think what they've done here is nothing short of a political uh, abomination that has now led to a, an economic crisis. And by the way, don't take my word for it. RBC now comes out today and says, guess what? You're going to face a recession and it's going to be very painful. And not only that, in 2023, a lot of people who are listening right now are going to lose their jobs. So, you know, there's thumbs up if uh, that's the way people uh, if people reward good government uh, by uh, allowing them to you know change their mind along the way without an apology. Uh, and you know, back when I was an MP, um, people who did such stupid things and created such dumb policies were shown the door very quickly. Um, um, Christia Freeland, when filling in for Justin Trudeau during question, question period, uh, boasted about the liberal climate change plan and pointed that the conservatives don't have a plan. I'm slowly Thank realizing God. I'm slowly realizing the liberals don't have a plan either because <laughs> the goals are never met. So, um, you know, it's great that B.C. has, I guess, the cleanest gas. So what they say. But what does that do? Reduces from two percent, less than two percent to less than one percent. Again, we've got the rest of the world demanding our energy. Us lowering our greenhouse gases by 1%. Is that a better strategy than providing energy for the rest of a dirty world, which is burning coal? Yeah, well, that's it. It's a phony It's a phony comparison. They're not interested in climate. If uh, they would, they would also admit that they can't do a damn thing about it. I'm sorry, but uh, what happens with the oceans, what happens with the uh, with the sun is not going to in any way, shape, or form change the way in which uh, you know we we have the odd hurricane, which by the way is quite quiet comparatively speaking uh, these these days. It's not going to change the weather, and it's not going to change the way in which other countries behave. What it will do is punish Canadians unevenly, and of course they're going to face a recession for that. So just make make it really clear to people when you hear a minister who wants to be the prime minister who's you know you know really. Uh, uh, tied to the hip to the prime minister, uh, speaking with such a forked tongue. On the one hand, saying we need to do more to get uh, our products to market, but at the same time, we have to do more in climate change. You know that they obviously uh, are completely bereft of any uh, policies that uh, one could uh, one could consider to be honest uh, and and based on uh, on pure fact of cost benefits. And so, I am um, you know I, it's it's going to take a recession. I think, unfortunately, Scott here in Canada. To wake Canadians up from this sort of uh, you know automaton type of approach of always voting for 
uh, those so-called progressive parties. They come up with cute little trendy ideas that at the end of the day, as I said earlier, do nothing for the climate. And worse, they make Mr. Mr. Putin a hell of a lot more stronger than he ought to be. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, uh, talking about where we are with energy in a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. As well. Take care, Scott. Bye for now. On a sad day, uh, as uh, two more police officers, four in the last month, three in the line of duty and one on his way to work, uh, killed by allegedly a drunk driver. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the police officer, Toronto police officer shot in Mississauga uh, outside a uh, or at a Tim Hortons, rather, uh, while he was uh, working with Peel officers on a training uh, situation. So uh, and then obviously with these two officers up in Innisfil uh, going to a a situation in a home they enter the home and gunfire and they are dead uh, as is uh, the suspect at this point so um, you know it it, it, you gotta wonder how how do you do this job how do you uh, how do you how do you put on your uniform every day not knowing that the person that you may meet and think of how many people they meet over the course of a day in their job Uh, who's gonna snap and who's not uh, let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's coming up after the 6 o'clock news. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Oh, I'm well. How are you? I'm doing good. So we were talking to a uh, retired police officer, uh, Perry Mason, who we've had on the show many, many times over the mm-hmm. years. Uh, he's been retired now for nine years. Says it's very much a different world now than it was when he retired. And I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he basically said, um, you know, like, as I mentioned, police meet so many people over the course of a, of a day. Uh, you never know if that person you meet is a friend or foe. You never know if, you know, they're going to receive the help or thank you that you're providing them or if they're going to turn on you. And that is something that they face every single day. Obviously, um, not that threat every day, but you just don't know. And you have to wonder how the men and women of the police services of of this great land uh, put up with that, go through that every day. Well, you know, these are the difficult questions. um, And, you know, not to get too far in because we don't have much time to do it. But these are the difficult questions when you start getting into the defund or detask or whatever word you want to have about police. Because keep in mind, one of the officers killed today by reports that I'm reading was a trained uh, crisis negotiator. He was someone Mm. who was supposed to be someone who was able to deal with people in crisis, which is essentially what a lot of these issues that we talk about with detasking or defunding we want people to go and be able to talk people down well this guy was trained in that and this did not obviously end well it's a tragedy and you know i i I always go back to this it's like okay we can talk about defunding or detasking whatever word you want to use to soften it but what happens the first time we send a social worker to a home Hmm. and this happens to her or to him yeah, and, you bring uh, and you know it's like is that okay because it wasn't the police who were there? And again, I'm not trying to be starting a fight. I'm not trying to be idiotic about this. I'm really truly not. I'm trying to be very sensible about this. Even if we were going to do a lot of the things and we have in Hamilton started, we do have, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. You probably remember it. Um, people who are mental health experts who will go around with police. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't, I apologize that I can't remember the name of that program right now. I'll think of it as soon as we hang up. Um, but, but you still have police with that person. Yeah. So in other words, when we're talking about, well, we want to reduce the police budget so that we can move it into other people doing these things. Again, I okay, but I don't know that you're going to still send people to calls like this without the police in tow. So you're not really able to cut back on all the police. You're just adding to it. It's it's a we, we tend to do this, Scott, in very black and white. We say it's very yeah. clear: cut the police or never cut the police. But real life incidents like this show that these things are not black and white issues. They are not cut and dried. They are very complicated and we can't simplify them simply with catchphrases like defund or detask or whatever, unless you're coming forward with really clear answers that would now, you know, there's always going to be the exceptions, right? There's always going to be horrible cases, but it's, it's not an easy discussion. And this shows just how difficult these discussions are. 
Uh, you know, I remember I've, I've got friends and cousins, family that, that have been on the police service as long as I've been around. And uh, I remember them saying anecdotally over time that domestic situations are the most unpredictable and the most difficult to deal with. They're the most um, emotional. Yeah, and be- because it, they're not black and white issues, as you pointed out. It's not like, well, there's the bad guy. Let's go get him. Uh, they're very, very complicated. And, you know, once you get to that point and then there's weapons involved, I mean, who knows what can happen, right? It, again, this is not my discussion to say that those who want to defund police, that we have Thank to you. scream at them and tell them they're all idiots. All right. I'm not saying yeah. that. I'm saying there are real consequences sometimes. And I know there was a case, I think it was in Minnesota a while back where they had started to do this and a social worker was killed. And I, and I, I, you know, this all sounds like a great plan until you send an unarmed mental health expert who is then in the middle of this ill-equipped to deal with these kind of things because it's spiraled out of control and now they are killed. And then what, then what do we do? Yeah. Uh, the program is called Coast with the Hamilton Thank Police you. Service. Yes, and, 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 and it sounds like it's an amazing program. Yeah, it's a great idea. Again, great idea. Sounds good on paper, but on the street. I think it's a good program even in, in on the street. But the yeah. point is you're bringing police with the mental health people. You're not cutting back on police. The police are still there with the person. So it's yeah. a budget increase, not a cutback to try and move it to someplace else. If we want to have the argument just to say, let's add mental health people, I think that's a fine idea. It's the it's when you get into, well, we got to slash the police budget by 25, 30 percent. It's like, then how are you doing that and keeping people safe? That's the Scott, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great one, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. So many problems in Canada, thanks to Trudeau's government. Any chance someone could smack him in the back with a wiffle ball bat? Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.